Hi, this is your host, Pete Bloom. Welcome to American Heroes Network. Our core mission is serving the brave men and women who have sacrificed to ensure our freedom. You will hear true stories from those that have served, learn about veteran organizations and resources, and gain hope for your future knowing American Heroes Network, your community, and other veterans are here and at the ready to serve and help you and your family. We will talk about the hard topics like PTSD and TBI. You will also hear military history, inspirational stories, learn about networking with the community, and more. So come join us and be part of our family. Today's guest is the co-host and interview scout for American Heroes Network and an Army veteran. I would like to welcome Steve Deaton. Steve, thank you for serving, and how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Pete. Thanks for having me on. So, Steve, starting off, I'd like to say that thank you for being part of the team. I know you're motivated to make American Heroes Network a great success, and I would like everyone to get to know you. So can you uh, briefly tell us about you and where you grew up? Yeah, I was probably a veteran poster boy if there was one. I was born November 11th, 1950, Veterans Day, in Camp Pendleton, a Navy Marine hospital in Oceanside, California. My father was a career Navy man, and so I spent the first 18 years of my life in, on, and around every Navy base up and down the California coast. Wow, that is uh, really crazy to have been that way more or less your entire life. As far as being born on Veterans Day, I think that's really awesome. So for you, I guess that day is always special for more than one reason. Have you ever had a, like a birthday party that had a veteran or army theme to it? Yeah, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah, my father, he had um, my family as two brothers and two sisters. And then I'm the second brother. We could always tell where my father was stationed by where my brothers and sisters were born. I was <laughs> born in Camp Pendleton. My sister was born in San Diego, Coronado Naval Air Station. My other brother was born in Long Beach Shipyards. My little sister was born in Alameda Naval Air Station. So we could track my father's deployments by our birthplaces. Wow, that is really crazy. And it's really funny. Uh, you know, another thing that I think is really cool is the fact that you were born on Camp Pendleton. I was actually stationed there and I lived in Oceanside myself when I was in the Marines. And I think you mentioned Coronado. Coronado mm -hmm. is where I went for my logistics training. So I was right there on the beach watching the seals run up and down the beach. So it was, it was very interesting. Oh, yeah. Later in my life, growing up, I don't remember each particular spot. You know, I went to four different high schools. So most of my memories of those places were very brief. But, of course, it was great real estate. I know that, you know, Southern California. Very nice. But the Quonset Huts, we lived in Quonset Huts on Navy bases. I just remember my mother always not really particularly fond of them. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah. But there was always a lot of children. There was always a lot of friends. There was always a lot of playground activities. You know, it was before the days of internet. So we actually had to go outside, meet the neighbors and play football and, you know, scrap up a baseball game here and there. So it was very fun. I just remember I did not have a traumatic childhood. It was very fun. You know, my son's 13, and he does love technology and Minecraft and Fortnite and all that stuff that they have today, but I do still make him go outside and play. So he goes out there and gets sweaty just like we did because I'm not going to have him uh, all indoors and never outdoors and not getting any sun. I don't want him to be, you know, white as a ghost. Yeah, yeah. I don't have any children. I never did. I missed that in my adult life. I kind of married the military, and I guess my ambition was to always see what was over the next horizon. 
And so with that kind of uh, motivation, it's hard to make a commitment. The thing is, though, is you might not have children, but you have, uh, I would say, hundreds of thousands of brothers and sisters now, right? Yeah, I've got a lot of friends in, in very different places around the globe. So let me ask you, besides your father who served in the Navy, do you have any other military family members or relatives that might have uh, helped influence you, or was it just your father? Well, my father, then after I went into the military, my little sister, she joined the Air Force. She was in the Air Force for four years. She was actually a belly dancer in the USO show. Oh, wow. And, yeah. And uh, they sent her over to Germany as part of a USO show, and that's where she met her husband. And then, you know, his first matrimonial decision was that she'd stop belly dancing in USO shows. So they, <laughs> <laughs> so they went ahead and had three children, and that was the end of her military career. Then my little brother, he joined the Navy, like my father. But he was in a traumatic accident, a vehicle accident. He wanted to be a submariner. He went through submarine school back in Groton, Connecticut. And then he was going to make his first deployment. He was going to meet his ship in Honolulu, his sub. And he went over there. And the first night he arrived, he was in a car accident, had a concussion, and that ended that. Oh, wow. It's a bummer. Yeah. Everybody was really proud of him. Still are. He just didn't get to fulfill his military aspirations, his dreams. Right. And you said he was going to join the Navy. So let me ask you, Steve, why didn't you join the Navy? Why did you choose the Army instead? I felt after 18 years on a Navy base, I felt like I completed my naval career. It was, <laughs> <laughs> it was time to find another service. Well, that's the humorous part of it. But the real answer was, is I was not as smart as I thought I was. I had failed to register for the draft in 1970. I was 19 years old. I was in uh, going to the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. And no one told me, or else I didn't pay attention, that you had, at that time, you had to register for the draft within 30 days of your 18th birthday to get a student deferment or some other kind of medical deferment. Well, I didn't register. And the government sent me a nice little letter one night that said, you failed to register for the draft, so you wavered your rights for a deferment. You will report to the Los Angeles induction station on such such a day at nine in the morning. And I went, holy mackerel. So that's how I got in the Army. That made my decision for me. Oh, boy. Wow. (laughs) But I was very close to becoming a Marine. Awesome. This is how naive I was. I thought I was just going down for an interview and a physical. I didn't know that would be the first day of the next 28 years of my life. I went down to the Los Angeles induction station, and at that time there was anti-war protests going on everywhere. The uh, Vietnam anti-war protests, especially in Los Angeles, and there was protesters everywhere around the induction station, laying on the sidewalk, trying to block your entry, trying to block your exit. I stepped over them. They're laying on the sidewalk, stepped over them, went in, went through the uh, physical and the interviews and all the little stations they had set up, taking your blood pressure, looking down your throat, et cetera, et cetera. And then you followed the painted lines out through the back door, and there was a whole line of Greyhound buses. And all of a sudden, this one Greyhound bus pulls up. These two picture-perfect Marines. I'd never seen anybody look so good in a uniform as these people that got off that bus. They were the epitome of a Marine Corps looking his outstanding best. But his fingers were bigger than hot dogs. 
He put his finger almost on everybody's face and said, you number one, number two, number three, just went down the line, number one, number two, number three. He hit my face, my forehead, said I was number two. Went to the next guy and said he was number three. And when he went down the line of about 40, 45 draftees, he said, all the number threes, get on that bus right over there. You are now Marines. Wow. Yeah. So I missed it by one finger count. <laughs> so anyway, I was a draftee. Well, you must have liked the Army enough because uh, you stayed in, you know, after being drafted, you still stayed in all these years and retired. So it couldn't have been, I guess, all that bad. No, no, no. It's not all that bad. But I have been a procrastinator in my life. And my wife told me, well, you probably decided you didn't like the Army the first year you were in, but it took you 27 more years to make a decision on what to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a bad marriage, right? As you're walking down the aisle you know, I shouldn't be doing this. And then it takes you 11 years to finally contact the lawyer. Right, right. <laughs> Just kidding. So why are those that have sworn to protect and defend important to the USA as you see it, Steve? Well, of course, that's the defining characteristic of a country. Currently, Trump, his message now is without borders, we have no country. Without soldiers, we have no integrity. We have no meaning. We have no definitive reason for being. It's all important. Soldiers, first responders, they're the fabric. They're the thread that holds the stars and stripes together. So you need to do whatever you can to encourage them for the sacrifice and to protect them and then to reward them. All veterans, all first responders, anyone that swears allegiance to the United States of America deserves that, nothing less. Yeah, definitely. Steve, I know you served in the military in your earlier years. Can you tell me about that? Like I said, I was a draftee and I had no choice. I was sent to Fort Gordon, Georgia, MP school, military policeman. I went through the MOS, military police, and then was assigned to the 140th military police battalion there at Fort Gordon, where I spent the next year waving cars in at night and waving cars out at night, and speeding tickets, et cetera, et cetera as a police officer on a military installation. It was about a year into my, you know, as a draftee, you only have to serve two years. So I was looking forward to the day that I would run out my obligation. I had about a year to go, and I was on post one night in the main gate at Fort Gordon. And I met a gentleman, James Brimley. He was also a draftee military policeman. We became friends, and he said, you know, we got to get out of here. We got to stop doing this. And he said, they're not going to let us sit here for two years. We're either going to go to Vietnam as a military policeman or we're going to go to Germany as a military policeman. And he said, we need to do something a little better than that. Not that there's anything wrong with it. That's not what I meant. But he said, I think we could have more fun if we were pilots. He said, the Army's looking for helicopter pilots right now. But the only caveat to that or the only problem was is you couldn't be a draftee. You had to be an enlistee and sign up for four years to get into flight school. And so that was a big deal. We only had like a year left to go. But sat around the barracks on Friday nights, you know, and was thinking, yeah, that would be kind of cool. So we went to the first sergeant. He kind of laughed us off, but he did sign us up for the testing. So we went down to the, took the tests, and it was about a month or two later, he got a call, said he, he was accepted to warrant officer flight training, needed to pick up his orders and his bus ticket and head for Fort Walters, Texas. Well, I didn't get the call. So I thought, well, that was the end of that. It was a good try. And it was like a month later, 
the first sergeant was walking by and he said, what are you still doing here? You're supposed to be at Fort Walters. What? He looked around at the pile of papers on his desk and found my orders, backdated it, made a few phone calls and said it was not my fault. You know, I missed my class. And so they sent me. I got on a bus and was in Fort Walters, Texas. Well, luckily, not for him, but for me, my friend James Brimley got caught with alcohol and a couple of local young women in the barracks. But he was partying with another young pilot applicant who was a congressman's son. So they weren't kicked out of flight school. They were just set back. So I walked into flight school a month later than my friend, but he was set back a month. So we were back in the same flight class. Wow, I can't believe it worked out that way. Yeah, James Brimley. He went on to be a appellate court judge in Finley, Ohio. So he did all right. Hey, I'm from Ohio. Are you? Yeah, Cincinnati. Oh, I I passed through, but I've, I've never lived there. But my friend likes it. So Steve, one of the things that you had said, you talked about your war record being one, 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 one loss, one tie, one win. Can you explain that to me? What does that mean? There's kind of a perverted symmetry to it, sort of poetic in a way. As a combat helicopter pilot in South Vietnam, everyone knows we lost that war. That was not a good one. There's my loss. And then I transitioned to fixed wing, and I volunteered to go to Korea. I was flying a combat surveillance airplane, an OV-1 Mohawk, on the 38th parallel at night. In Korea, they have a PARPRO mission, P-A-R-P-R-O, Peacetime Aerial Reconnaissance Flights. They're United Nations flights where the hours from sunset to sunrise, both standing armies have to stay in place. They can't move north and south because that would be considered an act of aggression or the failure of the truce. So PARPRO missions fly right down between them in no man's land on the 38th parallel with infrared radar. You just make sure everybody's standing still. They can move east and west, like resupply or whatever armies do but they can't move north or south. And so you just patrol 24 hours a day watching them. So that was my tie. I flew combat surveillance along the 38th parallel in an armistice environment of truce. And it's considered uh, imminent danger. So that's why I say it's a war record. There's several kinds of flight time you can log. Combat time is a fire for fire. Imminent danger is they can fire at you, but you can't fire back. And then my win, of course, was Desert Storm. I transitioned to a utility cargo plane, a C-23. Picked it up in Northern Ireland, and Army told me to take it to Desert Storm, see what it could do. They didn't have any planes like that in their inventory, and they were never tested in a theater. So I picked it up in Belfast and then learned to fly it en route to Saudi Arabia and then stayed there for eight months, flying passengers' cargo in and out of Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Southern Iraq. And so that was my win. So my war records, one, one, and one. One loss, one tie, one win. Wow, that's pretty amazing. And it just seems like you can fly anything. That's crazy. Yeah, there was a time I could. Yeah, I've enjoyed my flying career. When I got out of the military, I flew for commercial and private and commercial, corporate, and cargo. I worked my way around the world about 25 or 30 times, so. Well, that's pretty awesome, too. You know, many people don't even get to leave the United States. Some people don't even leave their hometown. So the fact that you got to see the whole world being in the military and a civilian is really an amazing thing for you. Yeah, it is. It's great. There's only a few countries I haven't touched. You know, I never made it to Madagascar. I haven't been to New Zealand and Pakistan. 
Afghanistan, Turkey, not those places, but pretty much I've touched ground on a lot of the other places. Well, we'll have to sit some other time and I'll have to listen to some stories about some of those other places that you've been because <laughs> I just find that, you know, pretty fascinating and I like the, the whole idea of travel and everything. Oh, uh, yeah. So, Steve, how did serving our nation change or influence your life? Well, it defined my life. It didn't change or influence it. It defined who I am. And for that reason alone, I have no regrets and no instances where I say, wow, I wish I would have done something different. It defined who I am as a person. It instilled a sense of discipline, sense of respect, accountability, which we're lacking today, you know, for your actions. Own it. Live it. It gave me all those things that I think a responsible adult in the United States of America needs to be reminded of. And so when you say, how did it influence me? Well, it defined me. You know, those things that you mentioned are really core things that make us what we are. And I do feel like that all of that is something that will, you know, really contribute to you helping make American Heroes Network a really great success. So that's pretty awesome. I hope so. I think this, I think our president, CEO, James Klug, you for stepping up. You know, nobody knows how to do what you do. I've known Jim for a few years. And when he mentioned the word podcast, both of us are looking at each other over coffee going, well, I don't even know what that is, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's the up and coming thing, right? Taking over yes. radio. I said, how are we going to do that? And Jim says, I got to find us an expert. I'm glad he found you. Why did you join the American Heroes Network team as a board member? Was it because of Jim? Because of Jim, yes. Because of my friendship with him, and I believe in him, and I believe in his vision, and I believe his definition of what he wants to do with this. And of course, you know, it's a huge undertaking, a project that you guys are committing yourselves to. And I just told him, actually sitting, having coffee, and I just said, hey, if there's anything I could do to help you, I don't know what it is, but if there is, just let me know. And then he explained this to me, and I said, I'm your man, I'm on board, I'll do whatever I can. It's the message is great. The platform is fantastic. It's in its infancy. You guys could do a lot with it, and I hope that I can contribute to its success. Yeah, that's outstanding, Stephen. You know, you being part of the team is really great and fantastic. I think you can bring a lot of flavor and color to it and definitely help out. And I think now we can really dig in and make a difference, you know, with the veterans that are out there and their families. Yeah, I hope so. There's a lot of veterans organizations popping up. Organizations meaning whether they're nonprofits or local chapters or clubs or even if they're organizational status there, there's a lot out there. But what I see is a lack of access and a coordinated effort to tie them all together. And I see uh, American Heroes Network being that unification, that one-stop shopping, so to speak, the voice, the platform that all these different things need. And so that's one of the reasons also why I, I want to be a part of it. I agree. And, you know, even besides, you know, the fact that we're going to be interviewing and talking to people who can help veterans and their families with resources and information, I'm also creating a resource page on the website so that we can, we can put everything there so people can come and look at it. So we're going to be approaching it from two angles, really try to, to help everybody that we can from every angle that we can. There you go. I think it's great. I think it's fantastic. Why is American Heroes Network important to you, Steve? It is that unification. It can be that one source for veterans, information, assistance, directories, etc. The one place that someone could go to express an opinion, express a concern, broadcast an issue. 
promotes some kind of new service that's out there. So it is important. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And the more organizations and individuals that we talk to, basically bring more resources to light for veterans and their families. So Exactly. What are you specifically going to contribute to American Heroes Network, Steve? Interview Scout is what Jim so, you know, wants me to do. Right now, I'm going to look around for informative, educated, entertaining guests and try and bring them to yours and, and Jim's attention. See if you can't make arrangements to have them on your podcast. And then also, every once in a while, if I can, you know, I'd enjoy being your co-host. If it's something that I know something about, make myself available. Well, I would say definitely that would be great, you know, with your colorful background and uh, all the knowledge that you have and a uh, sense of humor. I think that would be interesting. It would help to have fun. Yes, of course. Veterans' issues are serious in and of themselves, and they're very sensitive for some reason. We can't quite seem to get the general public on board. They're easily dissuaded, distracted, redirected, and American Heroes Network can kind of try to keep the focus the attention of the veterans, I think. We sort of help them, and then we forget about them. There's a history of that in the Veterans Administration. It seems to only come to light when it's politically convenient, but hopefully American Heroes Network can circumvent the political expediency of paying lip service to Veterans Affairs. Maybe we can really focus and bring some resources down to bear on it in a continuous and dedicated fashion. So that's my hope for American Heroes Network. Yeah, you know, I think that uh, over time, the Veterans Administration has made vast improvement. I've even been involved in some things most recently here in Florida, where the Florida Department of Veteran Affairs has come up with a program called Forward March. And it's going around the state talking to veterans and organizations to find out what veterans need better and offer them programs that they need better. So a lot of change is coming. A lot of improvement is coming. But even outside of that, one thing that I have found very often is there are a lot of people that are non-veterans in the civilian community that do care and they want to help. And there's programs out there. The problem is, is really just communicating and finding them. And maybe they don't know how to reach veterans and we can make a big difference because I know many companies that have veterans programs. Many companies offer training for free for veterans to help them make the jump from the military to the civilian world. And it's just about educating people about that. And I think they're going to be surprised that there's so much more out there than they've actually thought was available to them. So basically, we're really just getting started. So we got to buckle up and enjoy the ride. There it is, Pete. That's why I'm hanging on to your coattails and trying to support Jim. Well, Steve, I have a bonus question for you. What, if any, significant military history fact or event would you like to share with us today? I just have a little bone in my craw that it goes back to the Vietnam days and how the country failed that whole war and subsequently the veterans from that war. I don't want to repeat the history and the conflict and the turmoil and the social upheaval and all that kind of stuff. But I will say this about that. General Westmoreland, I was so disappointed in him. General William Westmoreland, he was the commander of the Vietnam Forces, I think from 64 to 68. And he's the one that started the slippery slope. He instituted this program of attrition, he called it, where it was his philosophy was kill everybody. If you can kill the enemy faster than they can replace themselves, then by that alone, you'll win the war. What a delusion and what a deception he pulled over on the government and the American people. 
that's not a military strategy. That's not anything that a general should have said or did. And he was even towards the end of his term there as the commander of forces, he was even asking Lyndon Johnson for an atomic bomb. Johnson got so scared he relieved Westmoreland of his command. And then eventually Johnson didn't run for re-election. Westmoreland was the chief of staff and Nixon kind of withdrew with dignity. But Westmoreland, at the end of his days, I hold him personally responsible for 58,000 deaths on the Vietnam Memorial, 58,000 names. If he had been a little more adept or listened to his peers, the, the war was unwinnable. There was no rhyme or reason for it, not alone. You know, he should have come up with different strategies, different tactics, listened to his subordinates and superiors, and came up with the real strategy instead of the attrition tactic. He always said he never regretted any decision he made and any commitment he made. And I just find that just incredibly wrong. And we can never allow that again. We can never have our generals disobey or disrespect any kind of military strategy or any kind of discourse or military involvement that runs afoul of the American people and the government which they serve. And so there's that one particular moment in time. There's not one specific military event, but I just could never, well, I'm still talking about it. Here it is in 2019. I'm still thinking about Westmoreland. I'd like to move on. But you're saying basically that he left that impression on you because of your disbelief in the way that things were handled. And I can understand that. I think that there has probably been many times when either individuals or I should say, you know, military personnel may not have agreed with a particular mission or a particular command and still had to follow it. But I think that just like everything else, you know, there have been improvements since then. I just think things are done better these days. And I would hope and pray that nothing like that ever happens again. Well, I'm with you on that one. So, Steve, that's really all for today. And I would like to say that I appreciate you coming on and talking to everybody and letting them know how you are part of American Heroes Network and how you hope to help us meet our goals and our mission of helping veterans and their families. And if anyone wants to reach out to you and, and talk to you, what's the best way to contact you? I think through the AmericanHeroesNetwork.com, the webpage has uh, links. But feel free to contact me. It's my name, S-G-D-E-A-T-O-N, S-G-D-E-A-T-O-N, at Outlook.com. And feel free. I'll be glad to answer any questions I can or be of assistance in any way. All right, Steve. Well, thanks again. And I uh, look forward to working with you. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Pete. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. Be sure to keep coming back each week for more great episodes. If you want to talk about something you learned today, if you have questions, or if you would like to be a guest on our podcast, go to AmericanHeroesNetwork.com and click on Contact Us. Thank you for listening.